Morning, everybody. The reading today is from 1 Timothy 5. I'm going to read um, from chapter 5, verse 3, um, through to um, chapter 6, verse 2. And that's on page 1193 of your church Bibles. Right, the rustling stopped, I'll start. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on the list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves, because they've broken their first pledge. Besides, They get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them, so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect, so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are follow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers 
and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. This is God's word. What a terrific reader. That's my wife. Uh, well, yes, the, um, uh, you may find it useful on the back of the sheet. There's an outline, as, uh, as Eleanor said. Oh, no outline last week, and you've given us three this week just to make up for it. Um, how rude. Uh, but hopefully it'll help us uh, cover some ground. <laughs> I mean, yes, there's almost more words in the outline than the, than the reading, but there we go. Uh, hopefully will uh, help us. Let me pray as we look at this together. Our great God and Father, we want to see Jesus. Here is a reading which is very practical, very helpful in thinking what matters in a church and how we run things. But Father, it's not just a manual. Father, we know that we need church to be run well so that people can see Jesus, so that we can see Jesus, so that a watching world may desire to hear more about the Lord Jesus. So Father, please teach us Help us understand rightly to that end we ask in his name. Amen. Well, last week, for the first time, I went, um, I've been meaning to do it for a long time, but went on a walking tour uh, around the city of, um, it was a Christian Heritage London, they're terrific guys. Uh, if, if you're here on holiday, go to their website, do one of their tours, I'm not on commission. Um, but they're, they're great, so they, they go around and basically look at historical places that are explicitly or to be honest, somewhat tenuously, uh, linked with uh, some heroes of the Christian faith. And it's enormously encouraging because essentially you go and visit someone who honoured the Lord and um, it, it, it's a spur. It's in a Hebrews 13 sense, I guess. It's, it's looking at those who've gone before us to be encouraged. And so amongst others, you go to Smithfield Market and, oh, look, there's the place where the martyrs were burned in the Reformation. You know, the, the, the courage of a John Bradford as he was burnt at the stake. Be of good comfort, my brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. That's how he felt. For the first, I'd never been to St. Mary's Woolnoth, um, which was intriguing. It's where uh, John Newton spent 28 years of his life preaching. It's just around the corner uh, from the Bank of England. And um, I mean, most will know, not only... I mean, there's a big thing up, you know, obviously the writer of Amazing Grace, sung more than 10 million times around the world uh, every year. I mean, there's some royalties, obviously can't claim them. Um, but, um, I mean, undoubtedly, I think in his generation, the most influential, probably evangelical, it's a small church, only 120 could squeeze in, but from there, obviously he, he encouraged William Wilberforce, stay as an MP, go about your task of ending the slave trade and uh, encouraged William Carey to go off as a missionary to India, Henry Martin to go off as a, a missionary to Burma. I mean, enormously significant man. Uh, but of course, the lovely thing about it is on the wall, there's his own epitaph, which he wrote. And um, there's the top half of it. So this is what he wants to remember. It says at the bottom of it, you know, this is how I want to, he wrote this himself. John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was... By the rich mercy of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long laboured to destroy. Actually, bid here, when we work our way through the letter of 1 Timothy, very similar to chapter 1, he's deliberately, I think, echoing the language of the Apostle Paul, restored, appointed to preach 
the faith he had long labored to destroy. And the reason I, I enjoyed that is because there's all this stuff up there now about Newton and his life and amazing grace and how much it's sung. But he said, look, I just want that on the wall. Okay, 28 years is a good knock. Um, so I, I'm probably, you know, someone's going to put up something. Can you put that up? Because if people want to come and say, oh, John Newton's church, I want them to go, amazing grace. <laughs> By the rich mercy of God appointed to preach. Delightful. Now, the reason I say that is because in this passage, uh, the bulk of chapter 5, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, honor those who honor the Lord. And to be honest, you need to stop giving money to some of those who are not honoring the Lord. But honor those who honor the Lord. In this passage, two groups in particular, widows, godly widows, chapter 5, verse 3, give proper recognition, literally honor those widows who are really in need and are godly. And again, in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of honor, double honor. Now, before you say, well, uh, who cares? I, I am neither a widow uh, nor an employed elder, so uh, no honor for me this morning. Well, hold on, hold on. Um, there may be. And uh, also, the importance of this here is it's so that God's name is honored, so if you want God's name to be honored, if you want a world outside to take Jesus seriously, you need to address these sort of issues. Because that is, in the end, the, the, the main concern. So chapter 5 and verse 14, the problem here is some of these widows should not be on, would come to a list, because they're giving me an opportunity for slander. The name of the Lord is being slandered. You've got it again in chapter 6, verse 1. The problem is God's name and our teaching are slandered. You don't want that. In very simple terms, chapter 5, you want to get rid of the wrong elders, get rid of the wrong widows, and honor the right elders and honor the, the godly widows, right? So that the name of Jesus is honored. That's the point. So that people take him Seriously, that's what's going on. Now, if you are joining us, this is, uh, we spent a couple of months or, or more in uh, this letter of 1 Timothy. It's their penultimate week. The, the, the guts of the letter or, or, or the, the main concern of the letter is that God is a savior. You get it as soon as chapter one, verse one and recurrent throughout the letter, pretty much every chapter. God is a savior who wants all people to be saved. That is the heart of the living God. If you wandered in this morning, think, what is God even, what is God even like? He wants everyone to know him and be saved. He doesn't make that happen. He doesn't force that through. He has purposes in allowing it not always to happen. But that is the heart of the living God that all come to know him as a savior. And the role of the church in that is crucial. So in chapter three and verses uh, 14, Paul says, I've written this letter, so, verse 15, if I'm delayed, you'll know how God's people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church is, sorry, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The longing here is that people know that God is a savior. The way that happens is, is the church presents the truth in what they teach and in their conduct. It matters enormously. And what becomes obvious here is that a lot of the problems in Ephesus come because you've got the bad elders 
wrong elders, wrong people in teaching positions, and they've clearly led away uh, into false teaching this uh, group of widows. Now, the context matters because this is not just a church manual. Here's everything you need to know about how to run church. It's a specific context which explains some of the, uh, the curiosities uh, towards the end of chapter 5. But we're going to look at it like this. Uh, lots of details on the sheets, but here's what you need to know. Only honour widows who are needy and godly, 3 to 16. Only honour elders who lead well and labour hard, 17 to 25. The reason? So that God's name is honoured. Okay. Needy and godly widows, hard-working elders, that's what you want, so that God's name is honoured. First then, verses 3 to 16, only honour widows who are both needy and godly. Now only, why have I said that? Well, the key element really in this section is that Paul wants to reduce the number of widows that the church cares for. Evidently, the, 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 the church here in Ephesus, they picked up from the Old Testament the, the, the great concern that the Lord has for those who are, have no great stake in society, those who are left without, widows, orphans, those with no way to care for themselves. And so it seems that there's some sort of official list, verse 9. No widow put on the list, verse 11. Don't put the younger widows on the list. There's some contract, You're on this list, and the church says, we commit to care for you financially. There's some sort of list there, an official uh, contract, I guess, or something like that. Seems to be what's going on. But there's a problem. Too many people are on it. So it's verse 16, become a burden to the church. Paul doesn't want the church to be burdened. And the wrong people are on it. There's clearly some immoral widows who've turned away. They're not even Christians anymore, but they're still receiving funding from the church. Stop that. Let's try and draw some principles out of it, though, um, that are going to be useful for you and me here. First, said, relatives must provide for their family. Verse 3 is the headline of the section. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But contrast, if a widow has children or grandchildren... These should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Now, actually, you work through the section, there are lots of reasons Paul gives why it's, if if a relative is in need, blood family first. Church family only as a safety net if there's no blood family. That's the principle. Blood family first number of reasons are given. Uh, So verse 4, there's a sense of repaying parents. Verse 4, it's pleasing to God. Verse 8, failure to do that. Anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives, especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Poor. Punchy. And uh, verse 16, the church is being burdened, so multiple reasons for it. So three little times in this section, relatives look after their own. Relatives look after their own. Church, don't support a needy widow if there are relatives to do so. Now, very practical, that. And, of course, how it manifests will vary somewhat within cultures, I think, as well. So there have been some here over the years uh, at CCM who have come from a cultural background 
uh, where it's just expected from their first pay packet onwards, they give 10% of their salary to their parents. That is just the cultural norm. You give to the government, you give to your parents. Now, for most of us uh, brought up in the West, we're like, what? Mine, my money, individualist, me, 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 me. Parents, yeah, you're all right. Um, and that's sort of how we assume. And I guess there's something to that. I mean, culturally in the UK, there probably is a generational imbalance of wealth. It's quite possible lots here will never be as wealthy as their parents. That's just the, the, the way the, the last couple of decades of history have gone. But don't ignore the principle that's here. If parents, grandparents are in need and you have the resources to help and you don't do so, you've denied the faith, we're told. For many, I guess, that probably isn't an issue and parents financially are okay. But if I could just move it perhaps one step further away from the explicit application here, just time and caring for parents, that's much harder. Actually, for lots of us, time is a more valuable commodity than money. And as some will know, when one parent dies and there's one left, they need help. There's certainly a stage where they need help and they want a lot of time. They will need practical help in budget planning, accessing benefits, managing their affairs. They need time and it's hard. Uh, at big odds, you know, I think my father died when my mum was in her last couple of years of life. She always wanted more time, more than I think I was able to give. Uh, and you can't be in crisis mode forever. Then she expressed her frustrations clearly uh, on such front. But I think we sort of knew that there was the, the crisis would eventually come. And the last six months, okay, we just threw everything time-wise at it. In the end, you know, uh, she was very thankful. It's hard. But at some point, all of us have got to reckon with this. The principle here of caring for family. Verse 8 is particularly strong. Anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives, especially their own household, denied the faith is worse than unbeliever. There's a very practical element to that. I sometimes think of my, one of my uncles who uh, died age 40 playing sport, just dropped dead on the pitch. No life assurance. That's it. He was the breadwinner. No one else in the family earning. That was it, the rest of their lives, impoverished. And uh, the wider family had to, it's just very practical. Be realistic, plan, take care financially of your family, Paul is saying. And in a very punchy passage, I think the strongest language is reserved for a failure to care for your family. In an individualist culture, we just got to reckon with that a little bit. Okay, look, relatives must provide for their family. The church, well, they provide for the worthy or the godly. So verse 5, if there's no family. Verse 5, the widow is really in need and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues, continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. 
Oh, that's good. Godliness is required to help someone out. It's seen in her prayer life acutely. The contrast is verse 6. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Now, there's clearly something going on in Ephesus at the time. There's, there's an immoral gang, but you, know, you don't automatically get godly because you get older. Plenty of people drift into retirement and are self-indulged and obsessed with spending money on themselves. <laughs> So Paul is saying there needs to be a track record of godliness. You get more detail in verses 9 and 10. No widow must be put on the list of widows until, unless she's over 60. I don't think there's anything magic about that number. That's a, a, apparently a, a cultural euphemism. That's like, don't put anyone on the list unless they're a pensioner. So it's just that age may be older now. Um, but uh, what else? Uh, been, she's been faithful to her husband, is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, devoting herself to all kinds of good needs. If this has been a married woman, she's been faithful in her marriage. If she's had children, she's raised them well. Striking. Now, I think there's a, a consistency here with the rest of the New Testament, of course. James could say, James chapter 1, verse 27, true religion involves commitment to the widow, to the orphan, to the socially disenfranchised within the church family who have no blood relatives to care for them. That's a must here. So relatives provide for their own family, church provide for the worthy, but however, there's this other group that shouldn't be on this list, the young. Young widows must provide for themselves. This is probably the trickiest little paragraph, to be honest. I think it makes sense if you hold it all together rather than try and pull apart individual little details. Verse 11, as for younger widows, don't put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. What's wrong with marrying? Well, verse 12, they bring judgment on themselves. They've broken their first pledge, presumably to Jesus. Okay. So they're wanting to marry, and they're marrying people who don't love Jesus, who aren't Christians. And in fact, verse 15, they're turning away and following Satan. So I think you hold a paragraph together, there's some, it makes sense. This is a group that have fallen for the false teacher's nonsense. So verse 13, they get into the habit of being idle, going about from house to house, and not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. And you think it's a bit harsh. I mean, gossip, it's not a good thing, but is it that bad? But I think the language is very similar here to the false teaching. Chapter 1, verse 4, myths and endless genealogies which are not of faith. Chapter 4, verse 7, godless myths and old wives' tales which are heresies. So I think here in chapter 5, he's just talking again about the false teaching. So verse 14, I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, to give the opportunity, no opportunity for slander. Why don't they just act like the godly ones? Why do they do that? Now again, at this point, bear in mind, there's no welfare state. Uh, very limited opportunities for young widows to say, well, I'll just go and get a job at um, Goldman Sachs or PwC. Just, those aren't the options. So don't read this and say, why is he telling them to get married? Why isn't he telling them to just go and get work? Or why isn't he telling them to go, go and sign on for universal credit? Those are not options. Okay? So the options here, marry and pursue a godly life. If you can't marry and you're godly, we'll support you. 
but don't go down the route of heresy. The issue is here, worldly young widows, that they've accepted the false teaching. They've given up on Jesus, but the church is still funding them. And Paul says, that's crazy. Don't do that. Not sure we've ever had a case quite like that. I do remember a few years ago here, uh, a a young woman. uh, She was a professional fine artist, painter, very talented. And, um, but, you know, there's... Struggling, uh, starting off with career, and you know you can paint all you like, but until someone buys something, you can be brilliant, but you know it doesn't turn into money. So worked also as a nanny. But it said the reason I'm not making it as a painter is I'm spending too much time nannying, so I'm quitting nannying, and I'm just going full time as a painter. Right. Well, how does that work? And I remember the conversation quite vividly. She said, "I know." every single person in this church who has a spare room and you are biblically obliged to look after me because I am impoverished at the moment. I can't pay rent. And if they don't, I'm telling everyone what a godless church this is. Ooh. I mean, it was actually sort of, it was one of those sort of, you know, whoa! sort of conversations where someone is, you know, finger jabbing in your face. I don't think so. Um, it, was, it was very strong. No, I, I don't. The reason you've got no money is because you've given up your paid employment. You could go back to paid employment. That would be fine. I don't think anyone's obliged to support you. And so she did go and slander church uh, everywhere she could. And at that point, I think Paul would say, no. Go to work. (laughs) Uh, The church should not be burdened in that regard. Two real criteria, needy, that is, there's no relatives to look after you, and godly, there's a pattern of godliness. Denouncing, finger-jabbing like that, I don't think qualifies. Okay, there we go. Only only honor widows who are needy and godly. Let's pick up the pace. Um, Now, sorry, any church can choose to be more generous than that, Okay. Uh, I think that the, the deacons fund here, which uh, helps those in financial need, has chosen to be more generous than that. That's fine. I don't think Paul would ever restrict generosity. He's saying you're just not obliged to commit. Okay, what about the elders? Only honor the elders who lead well and labor hard. Again, two little things, two criteria. Just as you want to get rid of the wrong uh, widows and honor the right widows, you want to get rid of the wrong elders and honor the right ones. That's what you want to do. So that God's name is honored. Now, honor the laborers with wages. Oh, these are excellent verses. Um, uh, although some of you prefer verse um, 23, I know. Um, honor the, uh, verse 17, 18, briefly. Honor the laborers with wages. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. So if Jesus says it, Luke 10 Um, don't ignore it. Now, clearly, there's a financial element again here. I think double honor is verbal honor, and remuneration, I think, is is the the double. And um, I guess it's fairly obvious. There's a correlation between standard of pay and standard of pastor to some extent. If someone doesn't have enough to live off, there's a limit to how much ministry they could do. So if you pay someone suitably, they're liberated. If someone is always stressed about money, that'll inhibit the work they can do. So pay them sensible wages. Two criteria. Only pay them, verse 17, if they direct the affairs of the church well. 
So if they're useless, don't honor them. And the other element, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, literally, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, same as uh, chapter 4 and verse 10, we labor and strive, precisely the same word. So two criteria, you honor those who lead well, and you honor those who labor at preaching and teaching, work hard at it. So those two criteria would rule out a lot of ministers up and down the land, I imagine. Okay? But if those two things are in place, honor them. Well, secondly, uh, follow due process if there's an accusation. Verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you're to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. Um, don't ad- admit or entertain a charge without witnesses. There's a backdrop of Deuteronomy 19 here. I guess the point is follow due process. Follow due process. I don't think Paul is saying ignore an accusation of assault if only one person says it. Follow due process. Ignore tittle-tattle unless there's two or three witnesses. But I guess the point here is investigate. Do it properly. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago. Do that. Verse 20, if an elder is guilty of some offense and there's no repentance, I guess verse 20, those elders who are sinning ongoing, they've not stopped, then you've got to stand up publicly and rebuke them. Ooh. And I think that's why you get verse 21. That's quite a big deal, Timothy, to stand up and publicly rebuke another leader in the church. But verse 21, I'm charging you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality. Don't do anything about favoritism. Just because you've worked with this guy for a long time, just because lots of people like him, just because you know he's going to cause a stink, you've got to do it. You've still got to do it if sin is ongoing. But don't be quick to a point. Uh, Verse 22, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. I think a tangent, verse 23, while I'm talking about purity, Timothy, this thing you've got about only drinking water and not drinking wine, that doesn't help with purity. So drink wine because it's less likely to be, um, have nasty bugs in it um, because of fermentation. Anyway, verse 24, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious. Even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Take your time to appoint leaders. It can reveal a lot if you just wait a little bit. So look, only honor widows who are needy and godly. Only honor elders who do two things, lead well, labor hard. The reason is so that God's name is honored. This recurrent idea throughout the letter. Head here, chapter 5, verse 7. So that no one is open to blame. Chapter 5, verse 14. That the name of the Lord is not slandered. In talking about elders, you had it back, remember, in chapter 3, verse 7. So that you don't have an elder who causes disgrace and um, damages the reputation of the church. Chapter 6, verse 1. We want to make sure that God's name and our teaching are not slandered. The church is the pillar of the truth. It holds out the truth. It holds up the truth to the watching world. If 
if you can, if you're the devil and you can get bad leaders so that the truth is not proclaimed, and that people say, look at that church, they're just so disgusting in how they behave. If you can get the church burdened financially by giving in, in their resources to people they shouldn't, brilliant, says the devil, because then the church can't do its job of holding out the truth. And it does matter because you need a church to tell the world that Jesus Christ is a saviour. Let me put it like this. I don't know if you remember at all. It was a few years ago. Kevin Beat. Kevin Beat was uh, uh, the leading cardiac heart surgeon at um, uh, a trust down in South London, Croydon. And he was sacked for gross misconduct. I didn't notice the story. A couple of years later, Kevin Beat, uh, having gone to an employment tribunal, was reinstated. And the employment tribunal ruled that he'd been sacked unfairly for whistleblowing. Kevin Beat was the best heart surgeon that the trust had. He went round and observed some of the others were not good. And there'd been unusual fatalities under the scalpels of some, unusually. And so he'd gone to the, uh, the leadership of the hospital trust and said, there's some guys here, it's not good enough. There's some poor surgeons and people are dying needlessly. And they'd all ganged up on him and pushed him out for gross misconduct. Two years, he lost his license, just couldn't practice. Two years later, the truth emerges. Oh, this man was the best. <laughs> this was a man who saved people's lives. This was a man who was getting rid of the poor surgeons. But dozens, hundreds over a two-year period were not saved <laughs> because they couldn't see Kevin Beat. Do, do you see the analogy here? If a church doesn't present Jesus rightly as Savior, there'll be thousands, millions who are not saved because they can't see Jesus Christ. It really matters that you get rid of the wrong people or you get rid of the poor surgeons, you get rid of the poor elders, you hold on to, you encourage the good who are going to do their job. It matters. If God's name and biblical teaching are slandered, people will not see Jesus. So the bottom line is, honour those who bring honour to Jesus. That's what you've got to do. There's a sense in which chapter 5 is basically uh, Paul saying to Timothy, Timothy, what you've got to do is this. this is, just get, just get everyone out of the way. Get everyone out of the way who's distracting you and distracting the church from seeing Jesus. And just get people in the church, prominent who are pointing people to Jesus. That's what you've got to do. So that his name is not slandered, but is honoured. That's what he does. John 17, of course, is the glorious high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. Just verse 6, verse 26. His emphasis on the name. So Jesus can pray to his Father. I revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. I've made your name known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I, may, I myself may be in them. Let's pause. 
Jesus wants the name of his father to be honored. He came so that the name of his father could be honored. Why? Do you see it? It's just glorious. Do you see it? Continue to make you known in order that, Father, the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Father, I I want your name to be honored. I want people to see you and then they will know your love for me. They'll experience in part the glorious affection that you have for me. They will know that themselves. If your name is honored, Father, I'm going to die on the cross so that your name is honored. I'm going to go and I'm going to my death so that many will know the love that you have for me. They may know that themselves. You've got to honor those who honor Jesus. He's the one who honored the name of his father so that you and I may enter into their glorious Trinitarian love. And in a smaller way, in any church, honor those who honor Jesus. Don't honor those who are distracting from him. It matters for us and for a world that needs to know that he's a savior. Let's pray together. Father, here is a chapter that is profoundly helpful in the level of detail it goes into, in its practicalities. It's perhaps, on first blush, not that interesting for some of us because of the level of detail it goes into on its practicalities. But Father, the heartbeat here, the concern here, that all would know you as a saviour. Father, would we rightly be a church that honours those amongst us that honour you, that we exalt those who point to you, so that even in our own church, in our own moment, there may not be a John Newton, but we esteem, we're delighted by those who point us towards the Lord Jesus. Father, would we be a church that does that to a watching world, we pray. Amen.